I'm going to invite you now to take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis 14, as we dive back into our study of the life of Abraham. And I don't want to assume that you've been with us since the beginning of this study, and so if you have not, allow me to do a little recap for you, to bring us up to speed where we're at right now in this study. After the Tower of Babel incident, whereby uh, collectively all of the inhabitants of earth rebel against God, God has made an assertion. He has dispersed them into different people groups, and he has said, I will no longer govern man collectively. I'm not even going to govern various peoples that I have uh, dispersed you into, these different groups. I'm going to start with one group. I'm going to govern one people. I'm going to take a man and a woman, and I'm going to build a nation from scratch. And he selects Abram of Mesopotamia and his wife Sarai, and he makes a promise to Abram. He says, I'm going to bless you, Abram, and I'm going to make you a mighty nation, and I'm going to give you this land, and it will be your possession forever and the possession of your descendants. And I'm going to bless all of the families of the earth through you. And that is God's promise, his covenant with Abram. Abram believes in that. And he follows God's lead to the land that God shows him. And he enters that land, the land of promise. And there Abram builds an altar to the one true God. And he calls upon the name of the Lord. And that, that is where we are. And by chapter 14, we have seen Abram go through two trials, two tests. He's failed the first and he's passed the second. And in trial number one, here Abram is. In this land of promise, all he's got to do is believe God. That's all he's got to do. And yet he has a little crisis of belief because there arises in that land a famine. And so Abram's tummy starts to growl and he starts to wonder, well, maybe God's not going to provide for me in every respect. And so he concocts an, a solution for himself whereby he goes down in his doubt to Egypt and he's going to appeal to the Pharaoh for favor and for some grub. And so he gets down there and he thinks, uh-oh, you know, my wife is really beautiful. And the Pharaoh is going to want her for his own. And when he finds out that I'm the husband, that's it for me. And so he has an idea. He goes, here, honey, I got this plan. Let's say you're my sister. It's genius. It's not genius. And that little ruse starts to fall apart. And the Pharaoh comes to him angry like a hornet. And he says, you get your monotheistic keister out of my country and never come back. It's a humiliating turn of events. And here this righteous man has been rebuked by this pagan pharaoh. And so he's got to go back up into Egypt. But he learns from his failure and he, uh, back up into Canaan rather, and he builds an altar to God and he goes back and he does what he did at first. And he calls upon the name of the Lord and God forgives him and begins to shape him and mold him. That's trial number one. It ends in failure, but he grows. Trial number two, he's with his nephew, Lot, and Lot is an ingrate. Lot is, is, is kind of a mess. And there arises strife between the two because They've both got livestock. There's not enough pasture for their livestock. And so they start to squabble over that. Abram has now grown. and He is wise because of the mistakes that he's made. And he says, Lot, 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 let's not fight. We're family after all. I tell you what, I'll give you first choice. Take whatever land you want. If you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. But let's just have peace. And Lot, in his selfishness, selects the best land. He looks upon that which is green, pristine, well-watered, and he chooses it for himself, even though in that land there is a wicked, wicked city called Sodom. 
And he goes out that way. Abram's eyes are lifted up by the Lord to look upon the land that God has promised him. And he goes his way and he builds another altar. And so we've had two trials. He's failed the first, passed the second. He's one and one. And now we get to chapter 14 and we're going to see trial number three. Trial number three. Now we can start in verse one, but that whole beginning there is rife with some rather complex names and just maybe I could pronounce them correctly, but I'm not going to put you through that. Let me just sum up what happens here. Basically, Lot moves into Sodom, and while he recognizes immediately that he's going to benefit materially from this decision, he also understands in short order that there is some baggage that comes with living in Sodom. You see, Sodom is a wicked city, but it's also a vassal state. It is under the authority of a regional warlord by the name of Caterleomer. Caterleomer. And basically, Sodom and some other city-states are beholden to Caterleomer. They give him tribute, they give him money, they give him services in exchange for protection. This is the world's first protection racket. Basically, Caterleomer is a mafia boss in Canaan. He basically comes into Sodom with his goons, and he's like, you know, uh, you, you, you need some protection. He goes, I tell you what, you know, I'll provide protection for you. All you's got to do is you got to give me, you know, some, some money. You do that, and bada boom, bada bing, I provide the services. You're all good. You don't do it, and you're going to be sleeping with the fishes. You know what I'm saying? So basically, this is the Canaanite goodfellas. And so Sodom does this for about 12 years. Year 13, they decide, okay, we're tired of this. We don't want to do this anymore. And so they get these vassal states together, and they say, let's rebel against Caterleomer, and so they do. And Caterleomer responds by smacking the ever-living daylights out of them. He sends his forces into Sodom. They loot, they pillage, they kidnap many of the city's residents, including Lot, Abram's nephew, because he is by now one of the prominent citizens of this wicked city. And so we pick it up in verse 11. Take a look. It says, So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling at Sodom, and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram, and when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house. 318 of them. Did you catch that? Abram, by now, by this point, God has so materially blessed him, he's got 318 trained servants that have been raised in the house of Abram. They serve Abram, and they are trained for, among other things, battle. So by now, Abram basically has a small army. I don't know if you ever knew that about Father Abraham. He had an army. And it says they went in pursuit as far as Dan. Dan is in the north of this land of Canaan that we now call Israel. It's up there by Syria. And as he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, he defeated them and pursued them to Chobah, north of Damascus. And then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. So Abram is victorious. He takes his little army. He pursues them. He goes all the way from, from uh, uh, Sodom, which is way down in the south, Dead Sea region, goes all the way up to the north, chases them up into Syria, gets all their stuff, gets Lot, gets the rest of the captives, brings them back, 
He's victorious. It's just a harrowing turn of events. Seems like certain death, certain disaster, and yet fearlessly, Abram springs into action and comes through in shining fashion. Have you ever found yourself in a sudden trial, a situation that that is a test? It's rather daunting. You weren't looking for it. You didn't ask for it. And yet here you are, and you've got to respond. You've got to react. And so you dig down deep, and you find something you didn't know you had. And you, you come through. That's what's going on with Abram. Because he's grown so much since his time in Egypt, his time of failure. He is now able to spring into action and he liberates his sorry nephew. How many of you would go to all this trouble for some sorry relative? Don't raise your hands. And yet between chapters 12 and 14, Abram has deepened in his understanding. He he used to be a wuss who had forgotten the promise of God. Now he is a mighty warrior. He is bold, he is strong, and he believes himself to be invincible in battle. How does faith make you invincible? Well, remember what God promised Abram. He says, I'm going to make you the father of a mighty nation. Does Abram have any kids yet? He doesn't even have one offspring yet. And so if Abram believes God's promise, what does that mean? That means he can't be killed. Not now. And so he marches forth as though there's no way I'm going to lose. Have you ever asked yourself, what would I do if I knew I could not fail? That's where Abram is. And he is victorious. But military victory is not all that we see Abram achieve here. We're going to read on and we're going to see that he will also succeed ethically. Uh, he's going to be so committed to the honor of God that when he comes back, he's got all the spoils of war. He's going to meet with the king of Sodom, this wicked king, and the king is going to say, you know what, since you've done this, why don't you take all the spoils with you? You can have all of the livestock, all the possessions, all the wealth that they absconded with. And he's going to look at that all, and he's going to say, no thanks. He's going to turn it down because he's so committed to the glory of God. That's real growth from not that long ago. And God has brought about this growth through trials. There have been three trials that we've seen thus far in the life of Abram. And we're going to learn from those trials. And here's what we learn about trials from the life of Abram in your notes. Number one, trials are often necessary, yet temporary. They're often necessary, but they are temporary. Now, when you read these, as we call them, the Chronicles of Abraham... There are 12 different major stories about Abram, and then there are 12 major tests, okay? And you got to understand that in chapter 12, what we read about Abram, he was 75 years old then. By the time we get to chapter 23, he's going to be 130 years old. So we're covering about 60 years, uh, roughly, of his life, which means if he goes through 12 trials, they're going to come about every four or five years. And those time lapses are very important to note, because if you don't note the time lapses, it's going to seem like Abram's life is like one of those episodic TV shows where there's a different crisis of the week, you know? But they're spaced out. I want you to turn with me, keep your place there. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. Trials like what Abram faces, they don't happen all the time. And when they happen, they come about because God knows that there's something you can learn from them. 
There's a, a need that you have to grow, and so he will allow trials to crop up in your life. Sometimes trials are necessary. You say trials are necessary? Yes, on occasion. Look at 1 Peter 1, 6. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. I want you to underline that phrase, for a little while. For a little while. If necessary, underline that word, necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, these trials are necessary, but they're for a little while. Okay, those are the two important phrases. These trials might be for our own good, but even so, they are short term. They don't last forever. This too shall pass. You say, well, I've got cancer and it's probably going to take my life. What do you say about that? Well, that will be temporary. It will. You will either be healed physically or you will be healed ultimately if you are a believer. All right. But God does not allow us to suffer indefinitely for eternity as believers. He sends trials. He doesn't actually cause them to be, but he is a sovereign God. And because God is sovereign, we go through hardship, and he can sovereignly use that hardship to shape us, mold us, teach us, instruct us, grow us into his design. And so that's important. And then number two, trials we see, they do two things. They reveal and they produce. They reveal and produce. Testing reveals something. It reveals, it reveals growth. That's what it reveals. Uh, you would never know the growth that Abram had gone through unless God had subjected him to a trial. How many of you are educators? Where are my teachers at in here? All right. Uh, have you ever given a test? Yeah. Why do you give tests? You give tests for the same reason that God gives tests. You give a test because it enables the student to use something he almost never uses, his brain. All right? Sometimes the only time a kid will crack a book is when there's a test and they study. And uh, a test is the only time a student can't blow smoke at you regarding how smart he is because it reveals something about that student. You know, have you ever had a student come to you, teachers, that says, you know, hey, after a test, why'd you give me a D? And your answer is what? I didn't give you a D. You earned a D. You earned it, right? The test either reveals the kind of grasp you have or it produces in you something greater. God's testing is the same way. It shows, shows what you've already learned or it produces something that you would not have or know without that test. Trials reveal growth. They also produce character. They produce character. Uh, Jesus' own brother James in James 1-2 says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It produces patience. Uh, what does Paul say? Romans 5, 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. The character of God manifests in our lives when we are tested. And I would also add, not only does testing produce character, but it also produces, it results in eternal rewards. First uh, Peter 1, 7 says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found a result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
there's going to be a judgment for every believer. And at that judgment, it is not about your salvation. It has nothing to do with your salvation. If you're a born-again believer, the judgment, a seat of Christ, your salvation is a foregone conclusion at that point. And so that judgment really is about the bestowing of rewards based on how you have obeyed and how you have performed in the testings of life. If I were to talk about somebody and say, so-and-so has really grown spiritually, what would you assume that means? You would assume that that means that they now know and obey more of God's word. You would say that that means that they now reflect more of his love and of his character. You would say that they now more uncompromisingly value the glory of God more so than the glory of this world or their own glory. And those are the three things that, that testing centers us in on the word of God, the character of God, the glory of God. Let's look now at how Abram has grown via these different trials, okay? Uh, in your notes, Abram has grown in relation to his steadfastness upon God's word. He has grown in the word of God. A year prior, the famine hit. He freaks out. He runs off to find a solution of his own making, and he embarrasses himself. Now he is running not away, but into battle. He is facing something uh, uh, up front because he knows the promise and the word of God. God has said, I will give you land, seed, blessing. And Abram is standing on the word of God. He knows I'm going to be the father of a mighty nation. I cannot fail because God's word is good. Do we believe God's word? Do we take God at his word? You know, I could read my Bible and I could be very prone to compartmentalizing it, to contextualizing it, to try to making it this, this intellectual thing, you know, just a series of creeds that I get to remember and recite. We do that from time to time. And, and my Bible basically could be reduced to nothing more than trivia until I go through a trial. And then I get to put it to use. And then it becomes alive. It becomes real. It becomes vibrant. It becomes meaningful. And your Bible in those situations becomes an anchor for your soul. Now, if it were just up to me, I'd skip the trial. I'd be just fine in my flesh with my Bible just basically being trivia because I don't like trials. Does anybody like trials in here? Oh, those are fun, aren't they? Yeah, no, no. I'd, in my flesh, I would much rather, you know, my, my, my faith just be reduced to some surfacey devotional some embossed scripture on the front of my leather journal. But God won't let me do that. John 16, says, this is the words of Christ. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. How do you know peace if you don't know trial? He says, in this world you will have tribulation. You will. That's a promise. He says, but fear not. I have overcome the world. I've overcome it. If I asked you what your favorite scripture was and you started throwing scripture at me, I bet you 99% of the time what I would hear from you is a scripture that became very, very important to you in a time of trial. Something that meant something to you when you were really going through the fire. And scripture's loaded with things like that. I think of verses like Hebrew 2.18. Hebrews 2.18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Is that a good promise? Anybody ever go through temptation? It's okay. You can raise your hands. We're all tempted, you know. Some of you are like, no, I'm never tempted. Oh, really? Oh, you got a leg up on Christ then, huh? Okay. I'm going to give you some of Scripture's greatest hits. 
here. And I bet you some of these verses, I'm probably going to hear some response from some of you because these verses mean something to you. How about uh, Ephesians 3.20? What does that say? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Man, is that a precious promise right there. I love that. How about this one? This has meant a lot to me. Isaiah 40, 31. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Is that a good thing to claim? Amen. I love this. Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Do not be anxious about anything. Oh, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then there's this one, John eleven thirty five, 35, which is the favorite verse of every child in Sunday school who is called into a scripture memorization contest. Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, the first one you hear in such contests among the children. Uh, Why is that an encouragement to us? Because it tells us something. It tells us that Jesus can identify with us in our sorrow. We had a memorial in here yesterday that I officiated. There was a a beautiful soul, uh, a lady. She was a believer. And uh, some say, well, if there's hope, the Christians have hope that when we depart this earth, we go to be with Christ and we will see one another again. So we should not mourn. Do Christians mourn? Yes, we mourn. Jesus is mourning because Lazarus is dead. That's what that verse is there for. He knows he's going to raise him from the dead in just a few minutes, and yet he mourns. And so what it tells us is Jesus identifies with us in our sorrow that we mourn with hope, and he knows what that is like. And it's, it's a blessing to read these promises from Scripture. The Scriptures hold hope for us in times of trial. Do you know who Corey Ten Boom was? Corey Ten Boom. If you don't, you should. There's a book she wrote called The Hiding Place. Read it. She's one of the greatest Christian believers of the 20th century. She was a, a Christian in Holland during World War II. She grew up in a house. Her father, Casper, uh, and her, her sister, her brother, her, her extended family were there. They were Reformed believers, but they, they read the Bible and they believed that the Jews were God's chosen people. And so they took, during World War II, they took many Jews into their home. They harbored them, kept them safe during the Holocaust. And when the Nazis find out, they come in, they arrest the family. And they take this Christian Dutch family and they disperse them into different concentration camps. And Corey's father goes to one camp, her brother goes to another, her nephew to another. Corey and her sister Betsy end up in Ravensbrook concentration camp. And there, faithfully, they share the gospel and they lead many prisoners to Christ. Corey's sister died in that camp. A few weeks later, Corey was released. She was set free. She later finds out it was because of a clerical error that she was let go. She was actually slated to be executed in the gas chamber. And God sovereignly let her go from that camp. After the war, she started a home for survivors of the Holocaust so that they could put their lives back together. Just an amazing woman. What is it that made her tick in such times of trial? She shares a story in her book, The Hiding Place. When she was a little girl, her father would take her to the train station there in Holland. And her father, Casper, said to her, Corey... When do I give you the ticket for the train? She said, well, Papa 
right as the train is coming, right as the train is pulling up. He said, exactly. He said, it is the same way with God in the trials of our life, right when you don't know how you're going to make it. There he is with the ticket. And she said, that story bubbled to the surface every trial she ever went through in her life. When she lost her father, her brother, her nephew, her sister, she knew her God was there with the ticket. As it is often said, he is seldom early, but he's always on time. And so we see this in her life. She says this in her book, and I'm going to read to you from The Hiding Place. Corey Ten Boom writes, as for us in the concentration camp at Ravensbrook, as for us from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of hope and life. She had smuggled a Bible into this camp. Like waifs and orphans clustered around a blazing fire. We gathered around the word of God, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Sometimes I would slip the Bible from its little sack and with hands that shook so mysterious had that Bible become to me, it was like it was new. It had just been written. I marveled sometimes that the ink on its page was dry. I'd believed it, but reading it now had nothing to do with belief. It was simply a true description of the way things were, of heaven and hell, of how men act and how God acts, the story of Jesus' arrest, how the soldiers slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices. My Bible in trial had become a mysterious thing, like the ink was still wet. You know what she's talking about? Can you relate to that? Have you been through a trial and your Bible comes alive? Like it's brand new, like it's just been written and handed to you and the ink is still wet? You know why Abram could so naturally trust in God's word? is because a year earlier he had failed. He'd fallen on his face. He'd given up. He'd gone down to Egypt. He got rebuked. He got reproved. He returned. He grew in his faith. He grew from that failure. And some of us have messed up big time. We've been through the fire. And we've, came, we've come up short on our own devices. But God forgives. And he restores. And we move on. And we stand on his promises. On his word. We go back to his book. We, we return to hear his voice. When we've messed up, and we all have, the difference between a fool and a wise man is not that the wise man never sins. It's not that the fool has ever sinned. Everybody sins. The difference between the wise and the foolish is that the wise man learns, receives instruction from the word of God. The fool returns to his sin. He receives no instruction. He goes back again and again and again. Abram learned. He learned. So he grew in his word, the word of God. Secondly, in your notes, he grew in his reflection of God's character. His reflection of God's character. He's not acting now in going after Cater Leomer to liberate his nephew. He's not acting like Abram would. He's acting like God would. Okay? How many of you would have gone and put everything on the line for that idiot nephew? A lot. I got to admit, in my flesh, I wouldn't do that. I probably would have preferred, if this were happening today and I had a lot in my life, I'd probably default to sending him a smarmy, pun-filled text. 
Hey, Lot, how's Sodom? I hear it's captivating. We knew you were bound to be a success, Lot. Hey, don't get carried away up there, you know. Just wrong. Abram doesn't do that. He doesn't expect Lot to just stew in his own filth and, and disappointment. No, he goes after him because, uh, because of mercy. He has experienced mercy himself. Um, he knew what it was to sin and to be forgiven. And so he goes. He wants that for his nephew. Some people are like, I, I can't just forgive and forget. First of all, the Bible never says forgive and forget. You know what it says? It says forgive. Forgive. Okay? Some of you, your problem is not that you can't forget the sin of somebody else. It's that you have forgotten your own forgiveness. You've forgotten that you've been forgiven. Okay? And so the person who will not forgive, bitter people are generally very self-righteous people. People who are very forgiving, they are that way because they remember what it's like to be forgiven. A man told John Wesley, I never forgive. John Wesley said, well, I hope you never sin. Jesus tells the story in Matthew 18, maybe you've heard this, about the servant that owed money to his master. He owed 10,000 talents. This is a story that when people heard it, they would have gasped or laughed. Because do you know how, how much money that is? 10,000 talents in today's dollars? That would be $225 million. How do you even rack up a debt like that? That's at least a couple of degrees from Duke. And so this servant says to his master, have patience with me. I'll pay it back. I'm good for it. How are you going to pay that back? Twenty-five, nine million dollar installments? Is that your plan? And yet the second gasp from the crowd would have come when Jesus said what the master did. The master looked at the servant. He said, your debt is forgiven. I forgive your debt. And this servant goes out. And people would marvel at that. Why? How? What kind of wealth? Who would enable a man to forgive such debt? You and I have been forgiven a greater debt than that. We have a master with infinite wealth. And it's because of his riches that he bestows on us that he can forgive uh, the debt, the, mag the, the incredible debt that we owe. And yet this servant in the story of Christ, he goes out, he sees a guy, and that guy owes him money, a hundred denarii. That's, that's, a, that's a pittance compared to what he owed his master. You know what he does? He goes up to that guy, grabs him by the lapels, and he, he says, pay me my money. And the guy says, have patience with me. I will pay it back. Same thing the first guy told his master, his creditor. And yet he doesn't re respond with mercy. He has this man thrown in jail until he can pay the debt back. And when his master finds out how he treated his debtor, that master throws him in jail. What are we to do? The Lord's Prayer says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Paul, in Ephesians 4.32, says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. If you've got a lot in your life that you're having trouble with, my counsel to you, remember where you came from. Remember what you've been forgiven of. And now we're going to see Abram's test isn't over. I want you to go back to Genesis 14 with me. 
Look what happens after he liberates these people, comes back with all the spoils and the captives. In verse 17, it says, after his return from the defeat of Caterleomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That's the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. This is a very interesting character, this Melchizedek. Who is this guy? Very, very interesting. What is this, this, this priest of the Most High God doing in Canaan, a land of pagans? I mean, if, if he's worshiping the Most High God, why did God make a covenant with Abram if Melchizedek exists? We're actually going to learn about this Melchizedek figure next week. He's a mysterious guy. But here's what he does in verse 19. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so this man, Abram, has grown in relation to his word, the word of God, the reflection of God's character. And then here's the next thing I want you to see. He's grown in his commitment to God's glory. God's glory. I want you to watch this. Verse 21. After Melchizedek comes and blesses him, then says the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. He's saying, look, I'll take the captives, but go ahead and keep all the spoils of war, all the booty, all of the things that the Caterlammer uh, absconded with. You just keep that as payment. You can have all of that. What a gracious gesture. What a magnanimous king, right? Hmm. I don't know about that. What does Proverbs say? Proverbs 23, 1. When you sit down and eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you. Put a knife to your throat if you're given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. You suppose the king of this wicked city, Sodom, would want Abram as an ally? Could it be this guy's got an agenda? Abram is a get-or-done type of guy. He's got a small army. Could come in handy. Hmm, might be nice if he owed me a favor. And so he offers him all of the spoils. If Abram takes those spoils, what does that mean? It means that they are a benefit he's received from the world. And he's not willing to to steal the glory of God and give it to the king of Sodom. And so he says in verse 22, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Same phrase Melchizedek used, incidentally. He said, here it is, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten. And the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. Basically, he's saying, I give the glory to God. God gave me the victory. And I swore to God, not one thread on my garment. Not one flimsy, dirty component of my shoe would come from the world. Lest I give glory to the world. That glory is reserved for my God. And it's his alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.15, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What is our ground for boasting? It is, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a holy God. And Abram would rather suffer death and poverty before dishonoring the Lord or giving his glory to someone who is undeserving. How much glory should we give to a satanic worldly system? We give them all the credit 
that they deserve. We give them the credit that they, that they deserve for what they have done, which is what? Nothing. It's less than zero, by the way. It's, it, nothing is zero with the edges shaved off. That's what we owe the world. So this is a man who succeeded militarily. He succeeded ethically. What prepared him to do that? What has contributed to Abram's success in trial? I want to quickly go through some things with you. First of all, in your notes, he was successful because he was clear on his position. He was clear on his position. What's his position? If you go back to the blessing of Melchizedek in verse 20, what did he say? He said, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. We got that scripture? Abram knew his victory. Indeed, everything that he has is from God. It's from God. He knew his position. We owe it all to God. And then secondly, he was firm on his past decision. He'd made a vow before he went into battle, before he followed Cater Leomer up into Mesopotamia. In, in verse 22, he said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High. I have, past tense. He said, I've, I've come to a place where I've committed everything to the Lord, to the glory of God. I'm not going back on that. And then third, he was consistent in his spiritual connection. When we see that high priest of the Most High God, Melchizedek, when he comes on the scene, it's in sharp contrast to the king of Sodom. King of Sodom is a wicked man. It says the king of Sodom came out to meet Abram because they were meeting for the first time. When Melchizedek comes, what does it say? It says he brought out bread and wine. It does not say he came out to meet Abram. You know why? Because they had already met. They were already in community. They had already entered into relationship. Melchizedek represents a righteous community with which Abram is already familiar. He is fellowshipping with the righteous. He's communing with the godly. And so because he operates in the presence of the godly, when he is presented with the temptation of the world, he sees it, he smells it out for what it is. We need to be surrounded by godly, righteous people. If you don't have such a community, I want you to just look around right now. You're in a room filled with them. You need to find your people. You need to find a pocket of community. You can go out these doors at the end of the service, go to the corner of our lobby over here, look on that wall. There are cards for different small groups, and you can join one. And you can surround yourself with righteous people. Scripture says if you walk with the wise, you will be made wise. Anybody need wisdom in here? Find some wise people. Find some righteous people. That prepared Abram. And then fourth, he was reminded of his transgression. The king of Sodom wants to give him all the goods. What, what, what would those goods entail? What would that involve? Probably some livestock some material things, some possessions. You think that might have reminded Abram of something? I think so. If you remember in chapter 12 when he lied about his wife, said she was his sister, what did it say? Back in chapter 12, verse 16, it says, and for her sake, for the sake of his wife, the Pharaoh dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep. Oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels, I would submit to you that when the king of Sodom offers Abram all of this, all the livestock, all these possessions, I bet you he got nauseous. I bet, I bet Abram's stomach started to churn because he had firsthand knowledge of the ugliness 
of the rewards of sin. He'd already been a beneficiary of worldliness, and now he's offered it again, and he says, I'll pass. I'll pass. Why is Abram so committed to the word of God? Because he'd failed and he'd learned. Why is he committed to God's character? Because he'd sinned and he'd been forgiven. Why is he so committed to the glory of God? Because he'd compromised, he'd seen what the world had to offer, he'd found it lacking, fleeting, and dim. His journey meant something to him. Does your journey mean something to you? Everything you've been through? Every failure that you've experienced? God doesn't want to beat you over the head with your past sins. We don't, we don't want to relive the things that we've done wrong, but we think of those moments as opportunities where God grew us, where God shaped us. We are the product of our experiences. Spiritually, we grow. Abram's growth is not academic. And so God uses everything that we journey through, right or wrong, to, to build us, to build a new avenue of our faith. I heard a story about a blacksmith who lived long ago. He was a rough, coarse, vile man. And yet by some miracle, he heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. His heart softened. He responded. He became born again. And over time, God molded him, shaped him into a godly, humble, peaceful man. And yet simultaneously, he experienced some financial hardship. He was losing business at, at the blacksmith's shop. And one day, a friend of his who was an unbeliever stopped by the blacksmith's shop. And he came in and he said, you know, I can't help but notice that uh, you're, you're really going through some financial woes here. You've hit some rough times. And I also can't help but notice that it seems to have coincided with your spiritual awakening. I mean, if this God of yours is real... And he is good. How come you're going through such hardship? And the blacksmith had been hammering away, making some horseshoes there on the anvil. And he stopped. And he looked over at the door. And he looked at his friend. And he began to hammer again. He said, you see what I'm doing here? You see this raw metal that I'm working with? He said, I take this metal and I heat it up on the fire until it's red hot. And then I lay it on that anvil and I beat it. I hammer at it unmercifully until I mold it into the shape that I want. And then I take that and I, I put it deep into an ice cold pail of water. And then I take it out and then I put it back in the fire and I heat it up again until it's red hot. And then I lay it back on that metal iron anvil. And I start to beat it again. And I make a horseshoe. I make something useful of it. Now, sometimes the raw metal I'm working with, it doesn't stand up to all of that. It will not yield to the, the fire, to the beating, to the water, the tempering. And it cannot be made useful. And so I take it and I throw it on the pile by the door. And he pointed to a scrap heap. And he says, so when I'm going through trials in my life, I think about that. And I think about what it's like to go through the fire, to be plunged deep into the cold, 
to be hammered away at. And I see it as a privilege because the alternative is the scrap heap. And I know that God is making something useful in me. And folks, when you're going through trial, I want you to remember that. I want you to remember that in this world, you will have trial. Jesus has promised us that. You're either on the anvil or you're on the scrap heap. And God takes those that he has never intended for that scrap heap and he allows us to go through the trials of life on that anvil. And as we do so, submit yourself to the molding, the shaping, the crafting of the master because he's making something useful. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for everybody in this room. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you that you are making something useful, God. And as our candidates for baptism make their way up to the front right now, they're just getting started on a journey whereby they're going to experience your promises, the promises of your word, the promises of growth, the manifestation of your character in their life, And I pray that they will learn, God, that the best thing is always to put your glory first and foremost in their life. I pray for anyone here in this place today that they would turn to you, Lord, that in this very moment, maybe they're making a decision whereby for the first time they're trusting in Jesus, not in self, that they are believing on the one who died on a cruel cross as a payment for their sin. That there's no trial of life they could ever navigate apart from the light, the salvation, and the strength made possible by Jesus Christ. Something available to them as a free gift, God. I pray that we will be encouraged by your word today and by the testimony of your faithful ones who are following you in baptism this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.